Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast, equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Thanks for tuning in again to the Living Leadership Podcast. And this is the second episode in a series of four under the title Love Your Leaders. In this episode, we're thinking about the right appointments. And we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25 to help us. Let's hear those words of Scripture. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, And of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Skip verse 23, which is put in brackets in most translations, uh, instruction to Timothy. Verse 24, the sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now, we've already seen that Christian leaders have a responsibility under God to teach, guide, and watch over God's people. I established that in the first episode in this series. That's how they equip them for works of service. So it's vital that the right people are appointed to positions bearing this responsibility. In 1 Timothy 5, we see three principles that can help us. Not to be hasty laying on hands, that's about appointing leaders. To give leaders double honour, that's about sustaining leaders. And to handle accusations against them appropriately, that's about removing leaders. So three principles. Appointing, Sustaining and Removing Spiritual Leaders. That's our subject in this episode, and let's consider each of those in turn. Firstly, Appointing Leaders. Laying on hands appears to have been a way of publicly and formally recognising a person as a leader. It was a precursor of what became, and still is in some Christian traditions, ordination. In Timothy's own experience, According to 1 Timothy 4 verses 14 and 2 Timothy 1 verse 6, we see that the Apostle Paul and the body of elders had laid their hands on him. Presumably that's describing one occasion when Paul was there and the body of elders. Now at that point, Paul says Timothy received a gift and Paul reminds him he needs to fan that gift into flame rather than neglecting it. That gift has variously been understood to be the Holy Spirit, the ability to to preach, or the ministry of preaching. And I suggest it most likely refers to the last of these. In other words, the laying on of hands didn't convey a special resource, an extra portion of the Spirit, or 
a new ability that Timothy didn't have, but it affirmed him, that laying on of hands affirmed him in the position in which he would teach. It was public recognition that that was the task God had given him. Now, of course, the ability to do that was given by the Spirit, so we don't need to split hairs over exactly what Paul means. You don't have to agree with me. But in any case, we can agree the laying on of hands clearly indicated that Paul and the elders recognized Timothy as a person suited to a leadership role. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 22, the apostle warns Timothy not to be hasty in laying hands on other people. The context is speaking about the work of elders. And earlier in the same letter, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, Paul has told Timothy the qualities an overseer must have. Here then, he's warning Timothy against being too quick to acknowledge someone as an elder or overseer. The reason he gives is that it can take time for a person's sins or good works to become apparent. Before appointing people as leaders, we need to know that they have the right qualities. And what are those qualities? Well, in chapter 3, Paul explains them. They could be grouped into two qualities of character and qualities of competence. The key character quality in view is self-control. These leaders must be able to control temptations to sexual sin. They're faithful to one wife. Outbursts of anger, misuse of alcohol, argumentativeness, violence and financial misconduct. In all of these areas, they have self-control. They're Christ-like. Bearing the fruit of the Spirit, self-control is the culmination of the list of that fruit in Galatians 5. In their ability to restrain their own interests, they are like the Lord Jesus. They serve genuinely for the interests of others. Those are the character qualities. The competencies that the leaders need are the abilities indicated by the three tasks that we saw in the last episode, teaching, guiding and watching. These leaders must be able to teach and to manage a household well. And managing a household well is the test of the ability to guide and to watch. Now, how can Timothy or churches today identify people who are suitable to be leaders? Well, firstly, the people must be willing to serve in this way. It's good that people aspire to be leaders. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 that whoever desires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Leadership is a noble task. It's a weighty responsibility. But secondly, these people must evidence their right character and competence. This will be evident in their reputation with their families and with non-Christians. So when we're selecting people as leaders, we should listen to those who know them best and to those who see them outside the church. Those people will often see the character flaws that can be hidden from people within the church. Now, importantly, Paul says this will take some time to become clear, so a new convert should not be made an elder, nor should someone who has not already shown a commitment to equipping and caring for others. That's why the Apostle Paul says that 
people appointed as elders should be hospitable. If a person isn't already opening their home to people as a, a place of provision and encouragement, why would we think they will care well for people once they're in a position of leadership? Similarly, it's only when a person's home is opened that it becomes clear whether the person is managing their household well. And this requirement to manage a household suggests that eldership isn't something for people who are relatively young or inexperienced in life. It might not mean that only married parents are suitable for eldership, but it does mean that how a person parents is relevant, and those who are unmarried and childless must show similar competency in other ways. Leaders must be among God's people, and only those who are among them should be appointed over them. The requirement to have confidence in a person's character must mean that whatever our system of church governance, in some churches there's congregational votes to appoint new elders, in others they're appointed by existing leaders within the congregation or those who have oversight over it. But whatever our system, there should be a period in which people can raise concerns about the suitability of the person before the appointment is made. Procedurally, that will mean taking great care to find out not only about competency, for example, having candidates for a pastor to speak in the church or taking references about how well they have guided people in other settings. It also means we need to think about their character. And I think we should consider taking many more references than we would normally seek, and not just the small number of people that the candidate chooses. What about asking the people the candidates have worked with previously, especially those they have led over, and if feasible, those they live alongside? And we should review those references carefully, noticing discrepancies and lower scoring points, especially realising that people often hesitate about being completely honest in a reference and tend to be quite generous. And I suggest that we have a detailed interview with a candidate to talk through the references, exploring the areas where some concerns have been flagged. Another aspect of appointments to eldership is the commitment the church makes to helping the person settle into their responsible role. That's especially important when appointing a paid elder from outside the congregation, and even more so when that person is relatively young or inexperienced. A probation period can help to build in review and provide an opportunity for either side to withdraw if things are not working. A mentoring relationship with a more experienced elder within the congregation, or if that's not possible, outside it, will also be of great benefit. This should not simply be left to the new appointee to arrange, and it will often work best if the other leaders in the church know who the mentor is, and if the mentor is free to report any concerns to them. Indeed, it may be that there is a more formal agreement with the mentor being expected to report periodically or to meet the new elder along with a representative of the other elders for an open conversation about the performance and well-being of the new appointee. So for more help on processes for appointing leaders, please check out our Living Leadership leadership commitment scheme, which includes toolkits uh, to help you. 
But secondly, we need to think about sustaining leaders. Having appointed the right kind of people as leaders, we must ensure they're properly provided for. We should set aside the right provisions for the role before we appoint them into it. Otherwise, we're not serious about seeing them do well. The phrase the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Timothy to describe this is double honour. It means, as I'll mention later, that we must have the right attitude to our leaders. That's the focus of the third episode. It also means, as I'll say in the fourth episode, that we must take the right actions to show them that honour. When we consider the context of Paul's words, this becomes clear. The word translated honour means the value that is put on something. Or we could say it's the price attached to something. So it has connotations of pay. If we doubly honour a person, we would be willing to pay double for their work and time. Now, The idea that double honour includes provision for material needs is backed up by the two scriptures Paul quotes in verse 18 of 1 Timothy 5. Those are from Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 and Luke 10 verse 7. A labourer, Paul says, is worthy of his hire. We will pay a person what we think their labour is worth. An ox, Paul quotes, must not be muzzled while treading grain, meaning it must be free to eat what it needs to give it energy to keep on treading. The implication is clear. If we expect our leaders to work hard, we must provide them with what they need to be energised to keep doing it. If we value their work, we must be sure that the conditions they work in are not constraining. If we decide to free them to do that work as their main job, we should ensure the remuneration they receive covers their needs or more. Of course, some elders will not need to be paid to do the work of eldership. They may be otherwise employed or on a pension. But if we do decide to support someone part-time or full-time, we must do it well. Now, I find it tragic that many Christian workers are paid well below the average income of the members of the churches they serve, and certainly below what other similarly skilled people are paid in other jobs. What does that say about the value we place on their ministry? It is true that a, a Christian leader must not be a lover of money or greedy for financial gain, but that doesn't mean we should keep them impoverished. In doing so, we might be feeding love for money, since those who do not have enough, often love money more than those who have plenty. It certainly provides ammunition for the evil one when he would whisper in the pastor's ear that his work is not worthwhile. But double honour is not simply about financial recompense. It's also about ensuring the person's work is not taken for granted. And that will mean acknowledging the hard work our leaders do and giving thanks to God for it. It's helpful for churches to do that periodically, publicly, perhaps on a yearly basis, and that could be formal, for example, at an annual general meeting, or informal, such as giving gifts at Christmas or their birthday. And double honour should mean a commitment to excellent employment conditions. Do your leaders have the equipment they need to do their work well? Do those who are employed or stipended by the church have a properly equipped and comfortable office? Do they have access to a comfortable space to relax during breaks and good facilities for making coffee or 
heating their lunch? Have we provided them with what we would like to have if we were doing similar work? Perhaps most importantly, double honour will mean ensuring that our leaders can practice Sabbath. That means there's a day each week when they can habitually switch off from productive work to enjoy God's creation and redemption along with family. That's not the same as a weekly day off from employed work, since that day will often be taken up with family duties, housework or maintenance. And I find that many churches give their minister just one day off per week. But it's not Sabbath, and that's unhealthy and unsustainable. How can we expect our churches to be well-led when we give no time for our leaders to enjoy God? How can they preach about him with joy if that's the case? Why would we expect our leaders to model joyful dependence on Christ and preach him with enthusiasm if we expect their week to include no time to learn from him rather than teaching other people about him? I suggest that every leader should be expected and enabled to have a weekly Sabbath. This principle of weekly Sabbath extends to a healthy rhythm of opportunities to rest and to develop, of course. That should include an allowance of time and money to attend conferences or join on a course. An allowance for books will also help equip those who preach for their task. Participation in occasional days for refreshment or retreat, such as those organised by living leadership, can also enrich the life of a pastor, and even more so if the pastor's spouse can also participate. Annual leave should also be provided and used, and a clear policy about sabbaticals will help sustain in ministry those who serve for a significant period of time. In all of these ways, in all of these things, there should be the principle of double honour, not the bare minimum according to the law, but what we think is the best to show the full honour that we give to the task of the leader. And now to the third point, when we think about the right appointments of leaders, how do we handle charges appropriately? How do we remove people from leadership? Now, of course, if we appoint the right people to leadership and give them double honour in all the ways I have described and will continue to describe, not least in providing for their material needs, then we can expect them to serve joyfully for many years if they stay healthy, unless, of course, they fall into sin. And the main areas of temptation that disqualify leaders are the things the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that an overseer must not be prone to, sexual sin, financial misconduct, and the misuse of power. Paul talks about them not being given to quarrelling, violence, or anger, outbursts of anger. Now, sadly, some leaders do fall into such sin. Others may not fall into sin, but they fail to do the task of leadership diligently. They don't teach well, they don't guide well, they don't labour hard at watching over souls. So how should we handle such leadership failings either through sin or through failure to do the task? Well, firstly, churches should have a clear policy about how people can raise concerns about leaders. Living leadership provides guidance on that through our leadership commitment scheme. 
our processes should be consistent with the principles Paul outlines in 1 Timothy 5. An accusation against an elder should not be entertained lightly. Normally it should be established by two or three witnesses, verse 19 says, so that he can't be destroyed or she can't be destroyed by one spurious accuser. There may be situations where an accusation from one person is clearly true. So I don't think we should just say if there's only one accuser, then we dismiss it, especially if there's a weight of evidence to support it. If the evidence points towards that, it should be believed. But normally we should expect that disqualifying issues like significant sin or laziness or habitual character flaws will be evident to more than one person. And the second principle in these verses relates to how a leader's sin should be dealt with. The leader should be held to a higher standard. So Paul says that discipline of a sinning elder should be public, verse 20. When a leader sins, it has greater implications for the reputation of the church than when a regular member sins. The sins of leaders also cause greater harm to members. They are a particular reproach to the Lord, who is the chief shepherd. He will hold them to account, and so should the church. Notice, though, this is only for an elder who persists in sin. Some sins must always be made public because they result in criminal charges. And let me be absolutely clear, if the allegation is of something criminal, that should never be covered over or dealt with simply internally. Or they become public because they have affected the whole church and require removal. Habitual, long-term patterns of sin, even if they're of a lower grade, should also be dealt with publicly. But if a leader sins once or occasionally in a more minor way, this can be dealt with privately. And if the leader repents, it may need to go no further. If the leader refuses to repent, however, the issue must be made public. The public nature of this process avoids any possibility of a cover-up. It shows that the church holds its leaders to account, and it ensures that everyone knows when someone who is regarded as a leader no longer is. It's a clear expression of the fact that the Lord's honour and the gospel matter more than the position and pride of individuals. Paul's third principle concerning handling of the sins of elders in 1 Timothy 5 is in verse 21. He says, keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Leaders under accusation deserve a fair investigation. No one should be scapegoated. No one should be removed because a few people do not like him or her. There should be no pre-judgment. Some leaders will be more popular than others and not always for the right reasons. Leaders who faithfully admonish people may be less popular than those who fail to do so. We must be careful to be fair and consistent in how we handle leadership failures. Nor should there be favouritism. No leader is above accusation. Too often in churches, one leader, usually one who's more senior than the others, is somehow above any accusation. But there's no biblical basis for that way of thinking. It's dangerous because it tends to set that person above the others and to make it harder to imagine holding him or her to account. On the other hand, a senior leader, especially if he or she is the only paid leader, may be unfairly held to a higher standard 
than others. Too readily, that person can be blamed for everything that goes wrong. Yet when one paid leader, a pastor or minister, fails to perform well, it almost always includes a failure of the other leaders and the church as a whole to hold that person to account earlier, to support that person's development, and to care well for them and their family. In that situation, all the leaders have questions to answer. Now in conclusion, we've talked in this episode about the right appointments. The first thing we must do if we want to care well for leaders is to make sure that we don't appoint to leadership people who are not qualified. If we do, we're setting them up to fail and the church will suffer. But we must also think about how we support these leaders to sustain them in their role by giving them double honour. And we must be realistic about the fact that leaders will fail and so have processes in place to deal with that scenario. Having thought about how elders are appointed, sustained and if necessary held to account, we can think in the next episode about the attitude we should have towards these leaders. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 12 to 13 will be our primary source as we turn to that subject in the next episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders, or you can visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Blessings. Blessings.